that's an amazing thing to think about. The revelation of God, the truth of who God is, was given to us in word, and the word has become flesh, and Jesus, the truth, has set us free. That is an amazing testimony of our Lord and his love for us. It's good stuff. Anyway, I'm excited about it. I don't know if you are. I'm excited about it, okay? 1 Corinthians. We begin our study of 1 Corinthians this morning. If you have not already uh, grabbed one of the reading cards, grab one. They're on these tables outside of both of the doors. They're going to give you uh, a section to read along with us each week. They'll let you kind of know what we're preaching on every Sunday so you can begin to study and prepare for that. In addition, it's going to give you a memory verse that you can uh, meditate on and think through and memorize with your family. It's a great little resource as we study uh, Paul's letter here to the Corinthians. Now, Paul started this church. He was uh, the one who started the church in Corinth, and he uh, led the church for the first 18 months, year and a half or so, and the church at Corinth in a lot of ways is going to be very similar to us. There's a lot of similarities there, but there is a whole lot there, and there is no way in five weeks that we are going to be able to do an exhaustive study of 1 Corinthians, but we will do a themed study, a themed study, and so what we're going to do is catch a few of the big issues that the church at Corinth was struggling with and how Paul addressed those issues. And so we're going to kind of pull out each of those issues and it won't always be as simple as like one chapter. We'll have to follow through a number of chapters and sections in scripture to be able to chase that theme. But we're going to try to look at a few of those themes. But before we kind of get into that, there are a few introductory things about the church at Corinth that we need to know and keep in the back of our mind as we study through these issues. They are important context for us to be able to, one, be encouraged, two, be challenged, and three, have a, just a good context for the revelation of God as it is written and intended to be. The first thing I want us to see is that the church of Corinth, they were redeemed. They were redeemed. They were authentic Jesus followers. They were saints. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. That word together will be our theme that we'll look at this morning. Together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. See, here's what's going to happen. We are going to discover some very disturbing things about the church at Corinth. We're going to learn that the church at Corinth was really messy. I mean, they got some major sin issues going on. And as we go through that and we begin to see this, it's going to be very important that we remember that they are the church. That they are authentic Jesus followers. The second thing I want you to see is they were individuals and yet they were one body. They were the church. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He skips down to verse 20, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. See, Corinth was a melting pot. It was a diverse city, a travel hub. People came in and out all the time. And the people of Corinth were from all different backgrounds, of all different economic backgrounds, of all different traditions. And yet they had assembled themselves together. We know the church at Corinth, the believers who Paul's writing to, they had a wide range of diversity of gifts. I mean, they were all over the place in their giftedness. And God had given them so many, so many gifted, unique people within the body. By the way, I am so thrilled that there is a diversity of giftedness. You are glad that Anthony was leading you in worship this morning and not me. Some of you should say amen really loud. Like, it is such a good thing for the body that we are all not alike. That we are gifted differently. And yet, listen, whether they lived this out or not, 
They were one body, one church, despite all their differences. Third, the church at Corinth was immature. They were immature. They were divided and worldly. They had issues. Now, it should not be this way, but it is encouraging when we realize that we are not the only one with issues. Don't be spiritual. I can see your faces. It's not, it's not that dark out there. Listen, you know, just like me, sometimes it's just encouraging to realize that you are not the only one with issues. It's encouraging to me. It probably shouldn't be, but it's encouraging to me. Listen, the church at Corinth, they had issues. They had issues. All kinds of issues. Deep, disturbing issues. Sinful issues even. They struggled with unity. They struggled with division. They struggled with their identity in Christ. They struggled with marriage and sexual immorality. They struggled with Christian liberty and love. They struggled with a lot of different things. Listen, they had issues. They had issues. And hence, the name of our series for the next five weeks, Issues and Answers. It will be the themes that we hold up. This week, we will look at unity. Next week, we will finish our, look at, uh, our examination here of unity and we'll lead into sexual immorality. A little bit of a note, if you're here as a parent, we're going to be talking next week about sexual immorality. My five-year-old will be here, but everyone parents different. So I want you to know that's the subject. The week after that, Josh Carter from Remedy City, our church plant in Portland, will be here to share with us. And then Pastor Mike will be back the next two weeks to lead us through two more issues. We will look first at Christian liberty and then love. Seems like an odd thing for a church to struggle with love, but Corinth struggled to love one another. And so we're going to go through each of these issues, but today we will focus primarily on unity. And we see that introduced in the very beginning in verse 2 that we read that the church in Corinth, the church, those sanctified in Christ, are called to be saints together. I think it's interesting that the first issue that Paul is going to bring up in Corinth is the issue of unity. I mean, they've got some, I mean, headlining sin issues. I mean, they've got some really, really sensual stuff. And Paul starts with unity. It reminds me a little bit in Romans chapter 13. At the end of Romans chapter 13, Paul lists off these four acts of darkness, this living in darkness. And he goes through and he talks about drunken orgies and sexual immorality. And then he lists gossip and jealousy. And if you're like me, you're going gossip and jealousy. I don't know it fits categorically with the other two. But it does when you realize what is at the root of disunity. What is at the root of division. See, unity is of foundational importance because first, it is who God is. See, God is one. And our unity in being an image bearer of God is to be one people under one God. See, it's also rooted in who we are in the gospel. See, in the gospel, there is no Jew or Greek or there's no nationalism. Listen, in the gospel, we are all aliens of this world. All aliens in this world, set apart, children of God, in the kingdom of God. See, in the gospel, all this has been flipped upside down, and unity is important. Not, listen, because of some idea of morale. Like, it's not unity because, hey, guys, if we can just get together as a church, think of all that we can do. It's not that. See, unity is important because it's who we are in Christ Jesus. It's who we are as image bearers of one God. This goes all the way back to the very beginning as the first written revelation is coming to Moses and in Deuteronomy 6, Moses writes what the Jewish people know to be the foundational truth that there is one God. The Lord your God is one And see, if there is only one God, it is a truth that is so big, it changes everything else. 
Because if there is only one God, that means there is only one audience that I live my life for. There is only one being that assigns value and worth. There is one judge. There is one who gives all that is good. There is one. I live for an audience of one. And see, unity is at its root is an issue of worship. It is an issue of sanctification, of being like Jesus. It's about who we are, not just some stuff that we do. And I believe that's why Paul mentions it first, because he understands this incredibly profound thought that we cannot be like Jesus and be divided. We cannot be like Jesus and be divided. God is not divided. He is one. And he has called us to be one people of one mission under him. And so as we walk through this this morning, we're going to look at four sections of scripture. We won't have time to get to all four of them. We're only going to probably get through about two of them. We'll pick up uh, the next ones next week as we uh, continue our series, but we'll get through as many as we can. But in these sections of scripture, there are seven commands that are given to us that overcome division and establish unity. Our first section of scripture begins in verse 10 of chapter 1. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking to the brothers, to the church again. Remember, we can't forget, these are beautifully redeemed children of God. That all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's going to be the section that we're going to look at. But as we go through 1 Corinthians, I can't help it. I'm random. I like to chase rabbits. The next few verses are so good. We're just going to keep going for a little bit, okay? Verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Church, listen, this makes me feel so good. Oh my goodness, this is so encouraging. It's one of the most encouraging places of Scripture to me because I have memory issues. Uh, about a month or two ago, we are driving in downtown Kingsport. I'm originally from Kingsport. And we were coming into Church Circle, and they're doing some construction on First Baptist and Church Circle. And I was looking at it, and I was thinking, you know, maybe that's a pretty good-sized church for, like, the direction and where it's set, kind of in, in church circle. And I was thinking about how they're building on, and, I could, and my wife kind of gives me one of these. Uh-huh. And I said, I wonder what the inside of that church looks like. I don't think I've ever been in there. Uh-huh. And I can tell, men, you've been married a while, you know, we're approaching like 20 years. Like, you can tell, right? You can tell. I know I've done something, but I don't know what I've done just yet. And so I said, have you been in, in, the, in the church? Yeah. Have I been in the church? Yeah. Is that where we got married? Yeah. See, some people say they have memory issues. I really have some memory issues. And uh, my wife is gracious and patient with me, uh, but I can't remember anything. And so, it, I mean, I just love it. That here's Paul, and Paul's having someone else pen the letter. He's speaking it to them. We know this even in the end of Corinthians. He actually takes a section, and he writes, and he says, I write this with my own hand as he affirms them. And so can't you imagine this dialogue going on with Paul and the person who's sitting there penning the letter for him? And Paul's like, listen, I just baptized these two guys, and that's it. And he's like, well, didn't you get uh, Stephanus in his house? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got that guy too. After that, I can't even remember. Oh, I love that. It makes me feel so good. Also, by the way, can I just say something for our culture today? Uh, stop being overly sensitive. Stop being, It's hard for some of us to memorize thousands of names. 
it comforts me to see other people's issues, right? So anyway, that's just random. It's there. It's fun. So then he goes on, verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I wanted to share this with you because I wanted you to see what I think is the best descriptive example in the New Testament that baptism isn't saving. That baptism is a symbolic proclamation of saving faith. Now we see that in other places in a in prescriptive. It's just taught and communicated. Here we see the testimony of Paul, the apostle, who said, I wish myself a curse for my people at one point in time. Can you imagine if baptism was a saving act and Paul says, that's not what I'm called to. I just tell people and then I just leave. And there's no way he says that. It's a great descriptive example that baptism is a symbolic act of saving faith. And it's, by the way, the way the church is to proclaim to the world they are in Christ Jesus. When someone placed saving faith in Christ, they were baptized and they showed the world that the old self is buried and behold, I am new in Christ. It's how they said, I'm in. It's how they say, I have repented and placed my faith in Jesus. But it's symbolic. He goes on in verse 17, he says, And with no words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Again, I relate here with Paul. I am random. My grammar is horrible. I speak in broken sentences. You don't have to amen. I know it. It is so good to understand that the power is in the revelation and the proclamation of God and not in an individual's delivery or competency. And Paul's sitting here, and by the way, if you read Paul's letters, you know he's random and he's all over the place. And Paul's saying, listen, it's not with eloquent words of wisdom. That's not the source of power. It's the gospel. Verse 18, he goes on and he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want to be careful, but I want to make sure we we get this. Many today hold up a relational view of evangelism that's really an excuse. We are called to be the ambassadors of Christ to proclaim the gospel. And sometimes, because of our fear... We say things like, I just need to get a relationship with them. It's just really awkward right now. I want you to understand something right here from the word of God. The gospel will always be awkward and foolish to those who do not believe. And no matter how much of a relationship you have with that person, it will always be that unless through the power of the Holy Spirit, God reveals himself to them in a way that is life-changing. The greatest example I can think of that is even in our own lives. I, I have people that in my family are lost and I've known them as long as I have been alive. I have some of the deepest relationship with them that I could have of anybody. So I've got, you know, you know, decades with this person. Can I tell you, it is still so incredibly awkward and hard to share the gospel. As a church, listen, we must recognize that revelation is greater than relationship. It is. And it is the power of God through the Holy Spirit that will change lives as the gospel is proclaimed. It's proclaimed. Build relationships, yes, but do not live in fear of the awkwardness or the foolishness of the gospel or the persecution that may come with it and recognize that we are called to proclaim it. So back to unity, Paul says, Chloe's people have come to me and they're, they're saying, listen, you guys are quarreling. And what's been happening is they're teaming up into factions and where there are factions, we know there are fractions and that the people are doing what they do when there's disagreement, they're recruiting. Now we know how that works. I disagree with so-and-so, they disagree with so-and-so, so we start recruiting our teams, Right? Don't act like you've never been a part of that. You know you have. And so they're recruiting their teams. And here they're teaming up around Paul, Apollos, Peter, and Jesus. First Paul, there are those who, you know, Paul started the church. 
He was the first so-called, if you will, pastor, leader of the church that's there. And, you know, uh, he was the, the church planner. He was the one, Acts, 6, or Acts 18 is where all this is found in the, in, in, uh, in the New Testament where you can kind of follow along. But he's the one who's sowing. And, you know, he's the first guy there. And we all, listen, we all know people that are rally around the Pauls, you know. Listen, the new guy over here, uh, you know, I mean, he's all right, but he's, he's not like the old guy. I mean, the old guy, he and I, we connected. I mean, he knew just how to speak to me. I mean, I, I like, I just, I mean, he's my guy, but not the new guy. Well, Paulus was the new guy. Apollos was the guy, the leader who kind of had taken over after Paul was there for about 18 months. And Apollos is, man, he's really uh, smooth and eloquent of speech. He's, he's very educated and trained. So there are a bunch, of pe- a bunch of people that see him as charismatic. And man, he's just like, man, I'm with the new guy. That old guy, man, I don't know about him, but I like the new guy. New guy, he's so much better. I mean, listen to him talk. He's smooth. Paul's awkward and random. Paulus was watering. And then there's Peter. And Peter is, you know, I mean, he's a a Jewish guy who had seen Jesus. You know, Paul says he's seen Jesus, but I don't really know. I know Peter saw Jesus. I mean, he's a disciple. I'm with Peter. You can take Paul and Apollos. I'm going with one of the disciples. And so there's some people say, well, I'm with, I'm with Peter. It's Cephas. I'm with him. And then there were those, you know, the super spiritual type. We all know the super spiritual type. Their chin's a little bit higher up in the air than everybody else. I'm with Jesus. And that sounds good, but here's what they're really saying. I'm not with Paul, Apollos, or anybody. I'm just with Jesus. I don't need his church. I don't need his people. I've just got him and that's good enough. And in some sense, that might be fair, but in another, listen, Jesus has appointed us to be one people, his bride in the church. And we don't get to just say, I'm of Jesus and not of his church. And so these people are walking around saying, I'm just good by myself. I'm good with Jesus. I don't need any of y'all. And they're just in as much air. It's not the fault of these leaders that this happened. Listen, here's why this is happening. Immature people were focused on lesser things. See, immature people were focused on lesser things. And we too do this. We too do this. And so as we look at this issue and as we chase it, I've got a few things that I want us to see, some commands that are laid out. The first one is that we speak as one. We speak as one. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Now that word agree, we read it and we think of just like mentally aligned. It actually means to say the same thing to say the same thing or to speak one message it implies talking it implies speaking i'll give you another place that exact same word is used so you can see the parallel a famous passage paul writes in philippians 4 11, not that i am speaking of being in need but i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content It implies speaking. Now listen, the first action of division is taken by the tongue. When we give in to the temptation of division, we start talking. We speak and we do not speak as one. God's people should not say one thing to one person and something else to someone someone else. See, this is what happens when our speech is not set by one worldview across the body. See, in immaturity, we drift from one God setting apart one people to one mission, and we begin to be individualistic, and we begin to prioritize our preference, and we begin to pursue those things. And before you know it, we are speaking, not our mission, not our God, not for the edification of our people, but for ourselves. And we create division. A few action items here. First, guard unity by guarding your speech. Guard unity by guarding your speech. Don't say something about someone you wouldn't say to them for the purpose of edification. 
He said again, don't say something about someone you wouldn't say to them for the purpose of building them up in Christ. There's no point. There's no value. Don't say that. Don't tear them down over those things. Next, and I'm horrible at this one. This is hard for me to say. Don't wait on biblical speech like you do biblical absolutes. My wife fusses at me all the time for this. We can get in an argument about which fast food restaurant has like the best french fries. And I will argue this as if the fate of humanity rest in the balance. Not because I care about french fries, it's just that's what I do. It doesn't matter. The other day I was talking with um, uh, my daughter about which princess is like the coolest. And I'm like why? I mean it was like the same level of intensity and tone as if we were talking about the gospel. It's just crazy. I'm wrong for that. Listen. Don't wait in tone and in speech Lesser unbiblical things like you do biblical absolutes. Consider this statement. Keep this in mind. In the absence of consistent, honest speech, conspiracy theories and gossip destroy unity. Why? Because then we don't trust one another. Because then we are always asking, what are they really up to? What do they really mean? And I'll just tell you something about friendships in general. If you're that person who's constantly kind of sowing disunity, who's constantly talking about other people behind their back, listen, your friends know that about you. They recognize that. And they wonder, when you're not with them, what do you say about them? And because you develop this speech of disunity, it breaks apart trust and it fractures unity. We must speak as one. You say, how can hundreds of people say the same thing? Do you want us to memorize answers for everything? No, I'm not asking you to be clones. Listen, that doesn't make sense. Unity is not a forced discipline. Unity is a harmonious overflow of one worldview. Worldviews that are formed and held as truth that overflow into our decision making that parallel a direction with one another. This is why Paul writes, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because if we set our minds on the one true God, all other things work out. If that seems like a crazy idea, understand Jesus used the same logic when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God, love his people, and the rest will take care of itself. It's the same principle, the same idea here for unity. And so we move on to our second command, to think as one. To think as one. He says that you be united in the same mind, verse 10. Mind here is rationalization, it's reasoning, understanding. Now listen, Paul knows that we have different personalities and interests and even intelligence. So how on earth will we think as one? We do so because we will recognize that there is a revealed truth that is absolute and that we will purpose ourselves to conform to it. That this becomes truth. And I am to live my life through its lens. And if I can do that, all those other things will begin to fall in place. Again, consider Romans 12, 12, what I was just quoting a minute ago. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now listen, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, a transformed worldview equals discernment of God's will. See, God's will is not some elusive mystery that we're searching for all the time. Well, we like to talk that, but that's a, that really, that's immature speech. Listen, God's will, wisdom, is discernible through the Bible. Through the Bible. And so some action items. First, study God's word to change your worldview. Here's the first step. Assume your worldview is wrong. It is. Mine is. Yours is. It's wrong. As I was thinking through this week, I began to pray, Lord, I need to change. I know I need to change. Lord, I don't even know how I need to change, but I know I need to change. Change me. 
Give me the wisdom to see how I need to change. Study is different than just reading your Bible, by the way. Study. Submit your mind to the Word. Meditate. Wrestle. Dig in. Understand that the Bible is written to be understood in complete comprehension of itself. There were no verses, no little like verse headings as it's written. They're written as larger letters and larger books that as we would study and as we would dive in, the comprehensive work of God's word would shape the way we see the world. And so second, unify around truth and not personality or interest or intelligence. Consider the issues here with Paul and Peter and Apollos. Listen, they had different titles, they have different appearances, they were different in influence, they were different in competencies. But the power wasn't in any of that. It wasn't none of that. We'll see that more in just a minute. But it wasn't in any of that. The power was in the proclamation of truth. The word of God, the gospel. I think it's interesting that we go through this section while Mike is on sabbatical. Mike is our primary teacher here at this campus and he's the one who we speak to the most now listen church I want you to understand something very profound about preachers we are like cold slaw yeah cold slaw here's the thing about cold slaw the cold slaw you like is the cold slaw you're familiar with you only like your grandmother's or your mom's cold slaw and after that you don't like anybody else's cold slaw I don't know why it works that way you're smiling because you know I'm telling the truth we wouldn't even eat cold slaw if we didn't have like parents it's only only eating like our family's cold slaw and the other thing I don't understand about cold slaw by the way why I'm on a cold slaw rant I told you I was random. Cold saw rant. How many different types of cold saw can there possibly be? And I've decided the answer is how many families there are. Every family has their own unique cold saw. It's mind-blowing. I don't get it. But, you know, whatever. Run with it where you have. But my point is this. We all have preferences. And our preferences are largely what is familiar. But I want you to get this. My preference must be neutralized by revelation. My preference must be neutralized by revelation. Why? Because I worship one God who is the source of power behind any proclamation. Behind any proclamation. And listen, if you cannot worship the one true God as he is rightly proclaimed because you prefer a different vessel, listen, it is a maturity issue on your part. There's no other way around it. It's a maturity issue on your part because the power is in revelation, not the relationship. It's truth. I mean, we say things like it's all about relationships, and there's a partial truth to that, but it doesn't hold. It is all about the truth of the revelation of who God is. And it is through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that that revelation changes lives. Talk. Another action item. Talk about God's Word. Talking helps us think. Talking helps us think. Talk to others. That's why in our life groups, we have a talking point that says, what is God teaching you? And we direct that back to the scriptures because we want to be a people that are unified around conversations that come from God's word. So talk about the things of God. Third, purpose as one. Purpose as one. He goes on, he says, and the same judgment. Judgment here means purpose or will or resolve. It is not so much the worldview, but the resolve that comes with it. It is the pursuit of the mission. It's, it's the truth that so changes it compels me to pursue. See, when the church recognizes there is one mission, we have the same purpose, it will show up differently, but we will pursue the same truth. Let me give you an example. Evangelism is a biblical mandate given to every believer. It is. There's no escaping it. Scripture says you are an ambassador of Christ. And in our church, in any given week, there'll be people like Troy Nave and Ed Leeson who'll take food boxes to people so that they can, one, serve a need, but watch this, so they can begin to open up a conversation that they may articulate and share the gospel. And then there are people like Roger Catlett 
who opens up our gym and brings people in to play basketball every week and every week sits them down and begins to articulate the gospel. And I've watched him with tears in his eyes proclaim the gospel and call for repentance and response. Those are two completely different hooks. One around food, one around basketball. But listen, if their motive is in line, it is the exact same thing that they are doing. They are setting up opportunities to proclaim the gospel to people who they would not otherwise see or be around. See, evangelism, the mission, the one mission is compelling these people to do different things in different ways. Watch this. But to get at the same purpose, they are unified in what they're doing. And this is what the church is beginning to do. So a few action items. Live your life through the lens of one mission. Live your life through the lens of one mission. Begin to ask yourself, is what I'm doing missional? How can I make it missional? In other words, don't just go to work, but go to work driven by one mission. Don't just parent, parent driven by one mission. Listen, don't just work out. Work out driven by one mission. Choose the gym you go to for missional purposes. Invite the person who runs with you to run with you for a missional purpose. Drive driven by one mission. Watch TV driven by one mission. You say, what on earth can I watch on TV that's missional? That's a good question. Live a life of one mission. One mission, one God. One people called to one mission. Our second section of scripture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered. Listen, God gave the growth. It didn't really matter which one was even there. God's the one who gave the growth. Listen to verse 7. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. Remember, different, but complementing, coming together, pursuing the same thing. Paul's saying, don't dare try to turn us against each other. And don't forget, when I talk to Apollos and he talks to me and we talk to Peter, we are pursuing the same thing. We may do it different with different personalities, but we are one people on one mission. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the way, this is why Tri-Cities Baptist Church holds up a teaching team and brings as many people around as consistently as we do. It is because we want you to understand, we want your familiarity, your appetite to be driven by the proclamation of God's word and not one or two or three people. We want you to crave and to worship through the proclamation of truth not the vessel. And that's so awesome and so wonderful to see. Verse 11, skip down to verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The fourth command we see is to grow as one. Paul says they are people of the flesh, infants in Christ. He says, I fed you milk, not solid food. Church, listen. Unity requires maturity. And the church will never experience healthy unity in immaturity. The church must mature to experience unity. 
here, the church in Corinth, the majority of them, as Paul would write, was immature. They were redeemed Jesus followers. Listen, but they were not as they should be. They were divided, broken. Listen, because their growth was stunted and their appetite undeveloped. And as a result, they acted in the flesh and not as spiritual people, Paul says. Keep in mind, babies are cute, right? We, we have babies, they're cute. And when babies do things, weird things, like spit up, we go, oh, it's so cute. If an adult does that, it's tragic. I mean, really think about it. If there's an adult, 40-year-old man, and he acts like a four-year-old, that's a tragic thing. But if we could look at the lives of our church through the lens of measuring spiritual maturity, listen, I'm convinced we would see some 20-year-olds with some bald heads and some big man beards, right? And I think we would see some seniors running around immature on milk with diapers and all things in between. You say, well, Daniel, we know wisdom comes with age, but not biblical wisdom. And it's important for us to stop and realize that. Maturity doesn't just happen because you've sat in a pew for years. It doesn't work that way. And because I don't want you to just take my word for it, the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 4.13, better to be a poor, wise youth than an old, foolish king. In other words, watch this. You can be successful, you can have age, and you can be immature. And you can have very little, and you can even be young, but you can be mature in Christ Jesus. It's there, we see that. And unity is a result of maturity. Why? Because unity demands sacrifice. Because in unity, what we are doing is we are dying to self for the one people God has redeemed us to be. I believe TCBC is a maturing church. I think we're a maturing church. That said, I want to be honest and let you know, from my observations for over four years, there are many of the thousand, let's say, people that call this their church home who are still immature. They're still immature. And it's evident through markers of spiritual maturity, through markers of practices that are seen in your life. And I want you to know something. You're still a Jesus follower. You're still redeemed. You're still beautifully adopted. But I want you to know I love you too much for you to go through life thinking the Christian life is to be lived in infancy. It's not. It is not. There is something of deeper substance, of transformation, a unity, a belonging that is there to be experienced in maturity that can be experienced no other way. And I long for you to have that. But we are good at making excuses. Let me try to knock out one of them. Paul said here, I had to give you milk, not solid food. And he wrote them 1 Corinthians. Listen, 1 Corinthians isn't just the meat. It's also the milk. Do you you see what I'm saying? It is milk. It's milk. It's there. The author of Hebrews says, I wish I could keep telling you and going on more about this, but I can't. He says, because you have become dull of hearing because you're immature. You're still babes in Christ. You haven't grown up yet. Do you know what he was talking about? When he says, I want to tell you more about this. He was talking about how Jesus was of the order of Melchizedek. How many people even know who Melchizedek is? Now listen, by the way, if you know the answer, that doesn't make you mature just because you have the answer. But understand, pursue scripture. Here's an action item. Value solid food. Value maturity. Recognize the position you have in Christ. Pray and pursue with discipline. Listen, no one likes math class. Nobody. Some people, some people say, I like math. Well, I understand, but no one really loves math. And your kids are going to come home to you and they're going to say, I don't like math. And are you going to say, oh, yeah, it's hard. You can quit. You're not going to say that. They're going to say, I don't get what my teacher's saying. It just sounded like the Peanuts adults talking. Like, wah, wah, wah. I didn't understand any of that. He said, oh, well, we'll, 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 no need to go to school anymore. 
You don't do that. Why? Because you recognize the value of the discipline of that pursuit. Value. Value solid food. Lena said to me, this was a few months ago, Lena comes up to me after a sermon. We, I had preached that morning. We were out at a restaurant, and Lena goes, first thing she says to me, Dad, you weren't nearly as boring today as you are on most days. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So I said, why is that? She goes, well, Dad, you told a lot more stories, and I like the stories. They're my favorite part. And I didn't say anything, but I quietly thought, and you're an unregenerate five-year-old. You like the stories because the stories are entertaining, but that's not what you need. It's not what you need. And see, in our immaturity, we like the entertainment more than the enlightenment. Listen, but it's not what we need. Value solid food, pursue it, and set aside the excuses. Weed out the excuses, weed out the bad, and sow in a pursuit of God's word that will transform your worldview. Unity will impact all of us as a church as we do that. Fifth and our last one for this morning, abide as one. Paul goes on, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. Only God. Unity is established when we recognize the truth that we abide in the one God. We talk about abide a lot here at Tri-Cities Baptist Church. It is because we recognize that the one true God is the source of power in our life. That it is he and he alone that can change the lives of around us. It is he and he alone who can change our lives. And we recognize as we pursue a deeper abiding relationship with him, all those other things will begin to fall into place. And so a few action items here. First, be unified by resting in the power of the one true God. Be encouraged. You may be sitting here like, listen, I'm like these people in Corinth. I'm immature. My life's a mess. I've been trying. I'm not getting anywhere. It's just, it seems like a struggle and it just seems like you're getting beat up. Listen, you are a redeemed child of God abiding in Christ Jesus. Watch what's going to happen. Whether you want it or not, if you are really in Christ Jesus, the very power of God through the Holy Spirit that indwells you will be at work transforming your life. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is at work in you. He is not giving up on you. He is pursuing you. You abide in him. Take confidence and rest in that. Know that that is your position. But don't use it as an excuse not to pursue him. Rest. Be encouraged to abide in him. I want to ask the team to come on up as we prepare to close this morning. We've talked about unity within the body of believers. But I want to make something really clear. If you are here and you've never placed saving faith in Jesus, this unity that we're talking about is irrelevant to you because you do not abide in the source of the power of that unity. And there is no greater decision on a weekend that revolves around freedom than you could ever make than to look up and recognize by the overwhelming power of the revelation of God in your life that you are a sinner, that you are broken and hopeless left to yourself, and that that reality would so compel you to cry out to the Lord, to recognize that he loved you enough to send his only son. To pay the penalty for the very sin that you created, lived, worshipped. And gives you hope of freedom. Hope 
of salvation through faith, not of your own works because you couldn't do it, but only in Christ Jesus. As we celebrate freedom this weekend, there is no other way to be free than in Jesus. And you will never experience the unity that we are talking about apart from saving faith in Him. And my prayer for you this morning is that the revelation of the gospel through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in your heart as you sit right there in just a moment as you stand and as you sing would so crush you in your sin that you would cry out in recognition of a God that is bigger, a God that offers hope, a God that offers freedom in His Son Jesus and offers it to you. That you would confess your sin and you would, for the first time in your life, confess Jesus as Savior and as Lord. For the rest of us, my prayer is for you that you would leave this place with a renewed sense of focus that we are one people, one people on one mission given to us by one God, that we ourselves offer nothing but the power of the church is in God and God alone, that the mission of the church is singular. Yeah, it's diverse, but singular in purpose. And that we might have a unity that would compel us to reconcile relationships. That we might have a unity that would compel us to maturity. A unity that would compel us to recognize that our freedom given to us in Christ Jesus is not a freedom that came without a purchase. It is not a freedom that is set to our own individual pursuit, but it is a freedom to be laid down for the sake of mutual edification. A freedom that is to be laid down to build up the body of Christ. And that we would leave this place on mission. Our one mission one people under one God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you and you alone are good. You are one and you have done a redemptive work in us and adopted us into your family and made us one people. And you have positioned us here this time, at this season, this world with one mission. saints called together. Lord, give us the wisdom. Overpower us with your truth this morning that we may recognize what is at stake in the unity of the church. And Father, I pray for those here who have never placed saving faith in you, that this morning through the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit, you would overpower them with the revelation of the gospel. And that right where they sit, they would place saving faith in you. A faith that would compel them to a life forever changed. Lord, I trust you to use your word this morning to change our lives praise you knowing that you will. I pray in the name of Jesus.